Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 37, in which I return to the well that seems to be so much enjoyed on this podcast, the well of former WWE corporate employees, people that I worked with in Titan Tower back in the day. And today it's going to be Keith Caramello, the graphic designer who I'll talk about in just a minute. But first, a couple of important pieces of business I want to get to um, first and certainly foremost. Uh, I've not had a chance to bring up on here yet. This happened uh, several days ago, over a week ago at this point. But uh, the passing of the legendary Antonio Inoki, arguably the the biggest star in the history of Japanese wrestling, uh, perhaps only exceeded by his mentor, um, Ricky Dozan, the the god of puro resu, professional wrestling in Japan. Um, Antonio Inoki, what can you say? A transcendent figure, one of the most important figures, wrestler, promoter, cultural figures in the history of this industry. Um, and in Japan, certainly that goes um, tenfold, um, whether you're talking about the fight with Muhammad Ali or his founding of New Japan Pro Wrestling or even his early days as a legendary tag team with Giant Baba in the JWA. Um, this was somebody who did it all in this business, wrestling Ric Flair in front of 190,000 people, the largest crowd to ever witness pro wrestling live uh, in North Korea in the 1990s. Um, he did it all, and um, his legacy cannot really be denied, uh, parlaying his success in the ring, of course, to a successful political career. I mean, the man went toe-to-toe in political negotiations with the likes of Saddam Hussein and Kim Jong-un, negotiating with Iraq, negotiating with North Korea for the release of Japanese prisoners. Um, He was more than just a wrestler. Uh, He was more than just a promoter. He was a cultural icon all through um, the late 1960s into the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. Uh, to to say that he was important to the world of vintage and classic pro wrestling is a gross understatement. Um, he was uh, an institution. And certainly there's a lot of talk of Mount Rushmore's of this, that, or the other thing. And I can echo something that was said on Jim Cornette's podcast that um, if you truly are putting together a Mount Rushmore of wrestling um, and looking at it from a global perspective, you really have to think about putting Inoki on that thing. Um, He's that big and that important. So we mourn the loss of the legendary, the great Antonio Inoki. 
Also want to mention this week, and I, I touched on it briefly in my last episode coming out of Cauliflower Alley Club, that I do have a handful of uh, of signed copies of Blood and Fire, my biography of the Sheik, that I brought home with me that are still available. Not many, but just a few. So if there's anybody out there that hasn't bought it and read it yet, I know there might be some people out there. If you haven't gotten the book yet and you're interested in a copy of my biography of the original Sheik, please reach out to me and we can talk. You can get me uh, through my email address, Brian R. Solomon at yahoo.com or on social media on twitter i'm also brian r solomon if you want to find me on there or on facebook uh via the facebook group or however please feel free to reach out and we can talk uh but right now i want to get to our conversation this is one that i've been sitting on for a while now and the main reason was that um you know i know how much people seem to like these interviews with uh, former WWE corporate employees. And I've done a bunch of them, and I did a bunch of them together. I didn't want them all to come out at once, uh, so I kind of spaced it out a little bit. Uh, Keith and I actually talked back in August, and I'm finally getting a chance to post it now. So I hope you enjoy this. We we really went down memory lane of what it was like being in the old publications office in those days. Uh, lots of funny stories. Keith had a very special friendship with Taz, especially, which we got a lot of laughs out of in this episode. So um, I think you're going to laugh a lot. I think you're going to enjoy some of Keith's insights on the design of championship belts, especially, which I know is a favorite topic among a lot of old school wrestling fans. So hope you enjoy this one. Uh, I certainly did. And I'm going to take you to it right now. Okay, so fans and, and listeners of Shut Up and Wrestle have now come to enjoy and I think expect these conversations that I will do now and then with not just, you know, wrestlers and wrestlers, so-called wrestling personalities, but people who worked in Titan Tower, people who worked on the corporate end of things, maybe the TV production end of things, people that I worked with on WWE Magazine. And I have another great one here. If those are the kind of shows that you love, then you're going to love this show. Because this is a guy that I sat about two feet from on the other side of a cubicle wall for a few years. A very thin cubicle wall in the WWE Publications Department uh, in the early 2000s. He was a graphic designer there. Also a belt designer. We'll talk about that. Tattoo artist to the stars. And uh, in 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 later incarnations, an artist of all different stripes. Uh, in addition to a tattoo artist, a successful uh, painter and illustrator as well. And if you're not totally sure who he is, you will be by the end of this hour. I'm talking about Keith Caramello. Hey, bring the excitement level up. Wow, are, are you hey, saying Brian. I I, Great I didn't see you, man? It's great to see you too, Keith. I, I hope that introduction was was excited enough for you. If my energy level's too low. Yeah, I'm ready to <laughs> no, I'm just ready to disappoint everybody. So I just wanted to make sure I started off with a bang. <laughs> no, this no, was not... that was uh that was ex... go ahead. I'm sorry, man. I'm gonna have to get my timing right here. Don't worry about it. No, I was just gonna say it's not gonna be a disappointment. And I just wanna before you go on, I just wanna make people clear because sometimes i often have this image in my head of like the way our workplace was and i assume everybody listening understands it but just so you know uh what keith's role was at least when i worked with him um and keith will correct me if i get his role wrong 
But uh, Keith did more than just magazine stuff. So WWE was kind of a jack-of-all-trades place, especially more back then than it is now. There wasn't a lot of specialization. So Keith was an artist. Keith was a graphic designer. And he was called upon really to do, and, and other, other people too, but he was one of the people who was called upon to do whatever they needed graphically. So I knew him best from working on magazine related stuff, but that was actually a tiny part of what he did. Honestly, he was doing stuff for creative services. He was doing, and and what I, what I can't wait to talk about is he was working on belts, which is something that fans are, you know, super into nowadays, uh, whatever they needed, he did it. And, uh, what were the years that you were there, Keith? Um, I was there, if I'm not mistaken, from 2000 to, 2003 give or take somewhere in that in that area i was there i actually landed there at a really uh interesting time because it was just post xfl collapse Hmm. Uh, i remember when i started coming in the building to freelance the xfl logo was still on the building (laughs) and it was it wasn't there very long and then it was off and then i remember not long after that uh, a few months in, the F had to be dropped. And I remember being part of those meetings when I was on the creative services floor as an associate director, uh, associate art director for uh, for the Get the F Out campaign meetings and the redesigning of the logo. And, and uh, so, yeah, it was a, for creative. It was a really fertile time to be there. Um, and. I got really, you know, really lucky. I mean, the story of me winding up in the building, first of all, as a freelance, and then eventually becoming a full-time employee, uh, it's nothing short of like a, a, a miracle that I even wound up there. Um, should I tell like an abbreviated story of how I wound up there in the first place? Yeah, why not? Because I mean... Our our overlap was very short. I I feel like I think yeah you were in kind of publications orbit for maybe a year tops, right? I mean, it wasn't that much. Well, this will this will kind of explain that. So, all right. So, where do we start? We start with okay. So, I had been a musician for years, and I was traveling around the country as a heavy metal drummer. Uh, and a lot of people who know me from art and from tattooing and from being kind of a um, uh, outskirts orbit wrestling connected person. They don't even know that I was a musician, but that's what my education is. My education is in music. And, uh, and I was a very formidable rock drummer and, and did a lot of gigs and a lot of sessions and blah, blah, blah. Ultimately I did not make any money, which is the fate of a lot of musicians. And I was also always an artist but I had never seen that there was any value in it. I didn't know how to monetize it. So anytime I would ever draw something, I would either give it away or, uh, you know, I was kind of a, um, I was kind of a jerk in my college years and uh, probably still a jerk now, <laughs> but I was like, you know, I used to do drugs and I was very aggressive and selfish and arrogant. Like I think every teen and 20 year old. So I took a lot of pleasure actually in drawing something really cool and having people fawn over it and then just tearing it up and throwing it in the garbage, <laughs> <laughs> which is it's hor- horrible, but you know, I have a very dark sense of humor, but 
anyway, so what wound up happening is I wound up saying to myself, okay, I have to figure something out. I gave the last group I was in a year to turn the drumming. An album had been released. Sony was distributing the album. It could have had some traction. Unfortunately, I think that it was improperly managed. So anyway, I won't go into the details, but I basically gave them a year to get me some kind of a salary, even if it was a salary just for live performances, or I would have to resign from the group and, and move on. So needless to say, I resigned from the group and move on. And in the meantime, I discovered tattooing. Um, my father had passed away and my fate was going to be that I was going to wind up in the construction business, like so many Italians with my brother. Uh, and I, I'm so glad I didn't follow that path because, you know, I'd probably still be running that business today. Tattooing came along. I was lucky enough to get involved and become a professional which later turned into um, tattooing some wrestlers. So what wound up happening is while I was drawing and getting my drawing chops up, I became really enamored with what was happening in comic books in the mid-90s, early to mid-90s, which was Image Comics, Todd McFarlane and sure. Jim Lee. And I know there's a lot of crossover between wrestling fans and comic book fans. That was the Image era, and comics were very hot in the 90s. So I made a portfolio and went to some conventions and uh, I didn't think I would get a salary fast enough. So thinking about what to do with the art chops, I wound up saying tattooing. And in the meantime, though, I had become a collector of these books and the toys. And that's how I wind up, believe it or not, at WWE. It starts like this. I start collecting Todd McFarlane's toys and at a Kmart out on Long Island, I started to know all the kids who unloaded the trucks because I wanted the toys before they hit the floor because every scavenger was going there and stripping the shelves of all the hot uh, available toys and especially like the chase toys that you couldn't get. Well, there I meet uh, Mike DePoli, who later on becomes ECW's tag champion Roadkill, Amish Roadkill. So Amish Roadkill, who was in the WWE for a bit, uh, and did retire the ECW uh, Tag Team Championship belts with Danny Doring, Dangerous Danny Doring. They were the last two to hold those ta uh, tag titles for ECW wrestling. He's the kid, and I do mean kid at the time, who unloads the trucks. Didn't have a tattoo on his body, never wanted one. But he, sh he helped me out, and I would slip him a few bucks to get me a case of toys right off the truck. Well, this turns into a friendship. I draw him some artwork. He commissions a few things, I get, but I give them to him as gifts, obviously, because he's helping me with my collection. Next thing I know, and in the meantime, all in the background, since I'm a little kid, I'm watching wrestling. I love wrestling. WWF, my E, whatever, my prime meet. But now ECW is just becoming a thing underground. People are going bananas for ECW. Um I know they didn't have their first pay-per-view until 96 or 97, but they were becoming a very crazy grassroots movement at the time. Uh, I'm sure you recall. I do. So, so what winds up happening is through talking to this, uh, this quote kid who later became one of my best friends, uh, Mike roadkill. He says, I'm going to go to wrestling school. I said, Oh really? I said, where are you going? What are you doing? He says, I'm going to go to the house of hardcore and I'm going to, 
joined the, the first big class at House of Hardcore. I said, holy shit, that's amazing. I'm so stoked, man. That's great. He goes, yeah, you know, this guy Taz is going to teach me. And this guy Bubba Dudley and this guy Perry Saturn, they're the, instruction, the instructors there. It's in Deer Park, Long Island, which was about two minutes from where my mom's house was. I said, this is great. Well, later on, Mike decides to get a tattoo. I tattoo him. He shows the tattoo off at the, at the, uh, at the school. And the next thing I know, he said, eh, Taz wants a tattoo. Perry Saturn wants a tattoo. Da, 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 da. I said, okay, great. Let's hook it up. So I wind up, and just a side note, just to give Mike some props, asterisks, Mike DePauli, a.k.a. Amish Roadkill, and Chris Chetty, hmm. also from ECW, the only graduates of a class of close to 30 in the first ECW hardcore class. Didn't Two know that. Two guys out of 30. I did not know that. Yeah, wow. I, they were giving, they were taskmasters over there. They had them, there were bleachers in the building, like old school bleachers from a high school. And Taz would have them doing like the Harvard step test up and down the friggin' bleachers. Like they murdered these kids and Chetty and Roadkill were the only two graduates. So and, uh, I thought I was so, so proud of them. And so you, anyway, that was my asterisk from Mike. So I, now I go, I'm sorry, I, I, but I know what you're going to ask me. So let me hurry it along. Um, <laughs> I think um, that was presumptuous, but uh, yeah, what, what are you like telepathic? What's going on? All right. Yeah. Go yeah, on. No, no. Uh, Let's see if you guessed correctly what I was going to ask. Uh, yes. <laughs> I blew my father. <laughs> Wait a minute. This is a PG rated show. We mean like blow, oh, like, like oh, blowing no. the wind, you know, like, Yes, right? yes. He was warm and I went right. <laughs> there you go. That's more like it. So Taz, yes. Yes, Taz. Yeah. So what winds up happening is I of course, and this is this is no shot at Taz or Perry or anybody, but I've tattooed celebrities, um, including them. And I put them in that category of celebrity. But what I will say about celebrities in general is they're the worst clients <laughs> because they don't want to come to your studio. So what does that mean? That means I got to pack all my fucking shit and tattoo them at the wrestling school because they won't come to where I tattoo. So I pack all my shit and I go tattoo them. And uh, they're great guys. I mean, I, I had a great time with Perry. Perry uh, was, a, was a character. And, uh, and I covered up some of the work that was on him and added some new things. And I actually created the... Uh, this is one I don't get a ton of credit for because it was WCW, but I created the Saturn logo that was on his upper back. Uh, and I think they did use it for either his tights or some merch or whatever, but no, no harm done. I always liked having a little bit of a legacy around the wrestling world uh, with my artwork. And uh, it was also a big thrill at the time Rick Rude was announcing for ECW and Rick Rude called the tattoo out. Uh, so that was crazy to hear. Like, you know, anytime I, I heard myself mentioned either vicariously or directly, in a wrestling broadcast, it was always a thrill because I'm such a fan of it. Um, and then with Taz, I tattooed both of his arms. He wanted matching tribal uh, sleeves, uh, not sleeves, pardon me, tribal cuffs around his biceps, which later on became the Taz 13 logo for, for WWF. Um, because if you look at that turned sideways, it actually says Taz. Right. Um, yes, yes, yes. 
So what winds up happening is, like I said, Roadkill introduces me to these guys. And I, I had way more in common with Taz than Perry because we shared the one thing Taz and I share is a sense of humor. We love like the jerky boys and well, just crazy. I, 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 I'm going to help you with your, uh, with your segue here, but we love humor. And I think that's where he and I bonded was we could crack each other up and we would, you know, fuck with each other on the phone and, and prank each other. But we developed a really tight friendship over our sense of humor. Well, I was going to say, and and I'm glad you brought that up because I, I'll just say this, and then and then I'll I'll talk to you about it. But for I'm, we're we're going to school people now for for anybody out there, and I can tell you I have firsthand knowledge of this. If you love or hate every time Taz uses the word yam bag in commentary, <laughs> then Keith is the person. That you have to thank for that. Because I was there. I was two feet away. The moment that that seed was planted in Taz's head over the phone. Isn't that right? Well, yes. I'm only going to take 80% credit. Because I mean, you didn't invent a, the term, but you it's gave an it old to dice, Right. Correct. It's an old dice clay thing. Uh, Andrew Dice Clay, which is another comedian that he and I both love. And uh, I, I was just on a kick of all of that shit because, again, you know, it was, you know, because well, really well, he was crude. saying it on he was saying it on the Opie and Anthony show at that Opie time. Opie and Anthony show. Exactly. So I was listening to a lot of Stern and Opie and Anthony and Dice would go on. And I mean, all the shit that would make me laugh out loud uh, would just bring me back again to old Dice records and the jerky boys. So I just, you know. Well, our relationship, Taz and I, really got cemented. Uh, I mean, literally, at one point, we were like two, uh, two, two kids. We would talk on Monday night while the Monday night shows were on before he was on either company. Uh, and when he was debating uh, which company to go to, because he had, a, he had, I believe, offers from both companies, I always pushed go WWF. Um, and one of the main reasons was I knew he had the gift of gab. Um, and I mean, ultimately his, you know, he made, of course he made his own decision, but I think he made the wise choice, uh, you know, cause the, the other thing is we also shared a love of announcers and, um, I don't recall if this was his favorite announcer, but I know he knows this was my favorite announcer, Gorilla Monsoon. So Gorilla Monsoon was my gorilla and Bobby are my two favorite personalities in wrestling. Yes. And I didn't even grow up watching them in the ring, but they were like my surrogate father and uncle for years. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they just had that old cornball sense of humor, you know, constantly just ribbing each other and a straight man and a, and a funny man. It was just, it just classically done. Um, so, you know, my thing with Taz is he had already been injured fairly badly before he even wound up in one of the majors. Um, and I said, man, longevity, dude, longevity. You can wrestle for a week. You can wrestle for a month. You can wrestle for a year. But if you become the next Gorilla Monsoon, you got a fucking career for life. For life. 
and and, said, and no, so we, that's what happened with him, right? I mean, you were right. He's pretty much following that path, and I and God bless him. I think it, it's huge. I mean, you know, and and I love that he's doing it the right way. And what I mean by that is, I always stressed how Gorilla wore the suit, and Gorilla had the the, the blue glasses. He had a style. Like if you would have took that all off Gorilla and just put him in a fucking polo shirt and some pants, he he wouldn't have looked like a right. star. Right. But he knew how to elevate himself and dress himself and present himself. He was a showman. He was always a showman. And and again, Taz always with a nice suit, the glasses that he's he's always well manicured. He looks fucking great, and he understands that everything is everything. You have to do the whole. 360 when you're an entertainer i believe um but yeah the yambag thing oh my god so much bad shit came out of that dude because there was a time where he was the smackdown guy with cole right uh who i actually tattooed michael cole too at one point whoa but, i didn't never um, knew that man i didn't even know he had yeah, it yeah yeah no. yeah yeah he does um but uh dude he was you know they got into this thing where they were really ribbon hardy on the mic matt hardy right and we went from yam bag to like his diet regimen was like he was eating uh lobster sauce and drinking banana juice like all these euphemisms for him <laughs> and, and basically but all that stuff was coming from dice by way of totally. Opie and anthony because i was listening totally. to Opie and anthony at the same time as you at that time and i was hearing all that stuff and i, I just have to i'm going to briefly interrupt you hear because no, please. I, yeah, yeah. I, I, from my perspective, no, no, I just want people to know what this was like because I was sitting, like I said, on the opposite side of a cubicle wall from Keith. So the downside and upside, upside and downside of that is we would hear each other's phone conversations. So he got yes. to hear, he got to hear me on the phone with my wife and my grandfather every single day, having the same conversation every day. <laughs> and what I got to hear was him on the phone with Taz. And he would be, I mean, look, Keith deserves credit for this. He was giving Taz material when Taz was an announcer. And I can remember the phone call because I never forgot it because I would hear it on TV. And I remember you being like, all right, all right, all right, Taz. Now, listen, listen, I got one for you. You ready for this? I got one for you. Listen, listen, yam bag, Taz, yam bag. <laughs> That's the one you got to say. And then you're explaining it to him. And little did I know, I mean, here we are 20 years later, the guy is still saying yam bag in AEW. Oh, it's a, it's a, fr it's a franchise. Now, now the banana yeah. juice and the lobster sauce didn't really survive as much. It's a little more wow. explicit probably, but the yam bag. Dude, I got, I've got the goofiest story about that. So we were <laughs> at the meet and greet at WrestleMania 20 and Matt Hardy comes up and, and I say, Hey Matt, how you doing? I said, listen, and this is how you know the, the wrestlers are so unaware of what's going on with creative and television, and, and probably for for a good reason, or at least that's how it was back then. I said, "Man, I'm so sorry, man. I'm I'm kind of responsible for a lot of the the fucking the ribbing, you know, fucking banana juice and this and that." He just looked at me, and went, "Huh? Huh?" And he just walked away. <laughs> probably doesn't even doesn't even watch the show, you know. He just does didn't it even and goes fucking home. Fucking phase him because I'm sure he just yeah he's worried about his fucking health and his fucking right his, his, and his, his, his and his crazy brother. I remember so, you. Uh, I remember you telling me a story about that Taz told you that because when he started saying and I think it was Yambag, but when he was saying it all the time. Well, hold on one one second. Let me just let me just 
let me just dial it in a little tighter. All right. So I, what I told him was, listen, the next time somebody gets hit below the belt, <laughs> you got to go. And I, I, I gave him like the exact delivery. I said, you got to go, oh, write me yam bag. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. And I, it, his initial reaction, I heard you fucking giggling on the other side of the wall. Yes. The, 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 his initial reaction was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, trust me, bro. Trust me. And he was fucking laughing. And uh, yeah, so that was the origin of of why it why Yambag surfaced on SmackDown. It went from Dice to Opie and Anthony to me to Taz to SmackDown, and now it's taken on a life of its own right. to the point where I saw um, Hook's title match, and what's in the crowd behind him but a giant sign that says Yambag. I know. Raises the FTW title over his head. I was like, <laughs> "Oh my god, my a, a whole life is coming to a, a to, to a fucking head here." It's and never gonna kid, go away. It's never gonna go dude, away. I, that, I remember that kid. I don't know if this is kayfabe, and if it is, forgive me. But I remember him in a baby carriage, man. So do and I. To see him. Yeah, I yeah. went to. I went to uh, in two thousand. Taz was throwing out the first pitch at Shea Stadium. Okay, oh, at a yeah. at a Mets game, I went there to cover it for the magazine. Brian Gewurz was there because he was a huge Mets fan and WWE writer at the time. So it was me, Brian Gewurz, Taz, and Taz's family in the quote unquote luxury box, such as it was right. in in Shea Stadium, all sitting together watching the game. And so Tyler Hook, at that time, I think he was two years old, and mm-hmm. I remember walking him because taz was like could you could you get my son some french fries he wants some french fries please so i took (laughs) i took him by his little hand and i walked him over to the concessions i got him a thing of french fries i brought him back i sat him down taz never paid me for the french fries to this day and now i see this kid and he's like the hottest phenomenon in wrestling it's crazy uh yeah it's i'm so proud man and uh I mean, unfortunately, well, you know what? We actually did talk recently, Taz and I, which is great. I was we wondering if you guys were still in touch. We had a minor falling out years ago, which I take uh, 90% of the responsibility for. Um, but we, we have since buried the hatchet, and we were actually chatting before his son uh, made his, his kind of um, on-screen, on-TV debut. Uh, the kid was looking for tattoos and this and that. And Taz, you know, called me up. Um, I did not tattoo Tyler, which is fine. And then that wasn't done for any done or not done for any personal reason, just uh, scheduling, timing, uh, what have you. But we did we did talk again. I wanted to contact him when I heard that his dad had passed away uh, because, you know, my dad had passed away and my mom had passed away more recently. And I know what it's like to be our age and to lose your parents and. Like I said, I'm a guy with a big ego. Taz is a guy with a big ego. Um, we've only had a couple of, you know, uh, disagreements. Let's call them that. And it's definitely because we're both very type A Italian guys. And that's all it is. And the other thing is, which is, you know, um, I'll only speak for myself because, you know, believe me, this this is going to get to him and I'm going to get a phone call, I'm sure. But I, I mean, I love the guy. He's, he's fucking awesome. And I, 
I'm so, like I said, I'm proud of what he's doing. I'm proud of what his son's doing. I think it's fucking phenomenal. But we're also both sensitive people. So we hurt each other's feelings. And I know that's a fucked up thing to say about, you know, a guy whose reputation is he's a super tough guy and he is a super tough guy. Um, but, you know, tough guys have feelings, too. And I hurt his feelings uh, and he had hurt my feelings. I'm glad it's passed um, because, like I said, I have nothing but love and goodwill for him and for his son. I mean, I just like I said, just to see the kid in the ring holding up a belt. I'm blown away, man. I gave that kid a Lucha mask beanbag chair for his bedroom. Like you said, when he was in a baby carriage, him right. and his wife and the kid were in my tattoo shop. Yeah. You know, so it's just, it's mind numbing. Did he ever come in the when you had the pro wrestler? Did he ever come in when you had the place on Long Island, custom culture? Not only did he come in, but he did me the favor for no compensation of doing a meet and greet and a signing at my grand opening. That's right. I remember that now, right. When you opened the shop there and you, and I remember you, you when you left WWE, it was to open that shop in Comac, right? Correct. I think Comac Correct. is where it was. Yeah, uh, no, I'm, no, no. The shop, the shop was in Bolton. Oh, right. Cause I stopped there a couple of times myself. I remember, but yes, sir, I remember yeah. you telling me, right. That he was at the opening. And I want to say what, <laughs> I don't want to make this whole show about Yambag, which I could if I wanted to. But there's nice. one there's one thing that I, I wanted to mention related to that at the time, one anecdote. And then I actually wanted to ask you about the belt thing, because I think people yeah, yeah, we, find uh, that really our cool. Our Taz segment, I've probably already buried myself up to my neck in this <laughs> Taz segment anyway. So. <laughs> no, but Taz, I love you. You know it. Shut up. Well, when I was it, when I had him in the luxury box there, I remember like I got to ask like the one question I was so dead serious about because I was a dumb dummy at the time, but I was from Brooklyn, you know, and uh, I was like, are you really from Red Hook? Like, I wanted to know, like, was it just a gimmick? Are you really, you know, what what's the deal? Are you really from Red Hook? Is that just your gimmick? Now, I don't know if it's true or not, but he claimed that he was. And I was like, where, where are you from? And he goes, um, Red Hook Avenue, which would have been really easy to make up if it wasn't real. But there really is a Red Hook Avenue. But then I heard in later years that he was from Massapequa. So I, I don't know what to believe if Taz was really from Red Hook or not. But Oh, um, man, I'm so grateful that you just did that because you just outfucked me <laughs> by a thousand percent. Taz, you hear this fucking guy? <laughs> Do you hear this fucking B-Sol guy saying you're not from Red Hook? Hey, I believed him. I believed him. Well, that, oh, backpedaling. So that that completely erases anything I may have said that you may have misinterpreted as an insult. Well, I think he's could... outdone me by insulting you uh, <laughs> a thousand and one percent. Uh, we need to get this guy for Let's people who for people who are not from Brooklyn. <laughs> I've heard that such people exist. Just so you know, Red Hook, you know, is this was I don't know what it's probably now like granola land, but I mean it Keep was going, dude. Keep going. Red Hook was this very tough neighborhood. It was like, but it was tough in a in a unique kind of way. Red Hook was abandoned. It wasn't even like it was like uh like an inner city. It was like devastated. It was like a it, oh yeah. Absolutely. It used to be used to be a big um you know industrial area, a lot of um shipping and stuff and when that industry died out died, died out it just became like empty you know you would go there and it was like wow 
but it was a rough place to grow up. So that's why I asked him that, because it meant a lot to me to be like, wow, if you really are from Red Hook, which I believe you are, that is like, I got a lot of respect for anybody that grew up in that environment. But no, the thing I was going to mention was that you told me a story that he told you where he was using the Yambeg thing on the air a lot at that point. And apparently, like Vince, who, as people know, was on the headset with all the announcers, like communicating with them through the show. And Vince was like trying to figure out what the hell Yambag meant, what it referred to, because I guess <laughs> it had never been it had never been cleared by him. And and I remember you told me that Taz said that he got him backstage at one point and he was like very good natured about it. And Vince and his Vince voice was like, listen, Taz, um, I don't know what this yam bag thing is, but uh, I'm going to find out. I'm going to find out what a yam bag is. I wonder if Vince (laughs) ever found out. You know what? I believe that story was, but I I don't recall it. But that totally sounds like something (laughs) that definitely happened. I know he got some heat from, uh, I think Jim Ross used to break his balls about some of the stuff, but. He didn't give a fuck, man. Thank God. You know, he wasn't uh, he wasn't uh, violating any standards and practices or anything. No, uh, it was so a great way to get around to belts, it. Before we move on to the belts, uh, I just want to make sure everybody's clear that you're calling Taz a liar. Uh, <laughs> oh, and you're yes, saying completely. that he you're saying that he was born in Massapequa. And uh, do you, <laughs> you think he's a little fruity and he's a little light in the loafers. OK, so just so I'm clear. <laughs> I will okay, say so. I will say that there is floating around on the internet because back in the uh, in the what pen doing, it, in the pen pal <laughs> days of wrestling magazines. No, because this is where it comes from. In the pen pal days of wrestling magazines, there were you know people would write there would be a pen pal column like in in the wrestler or inside wrestling, and you would find people you could write letters to, and somebody found little peeny little peedy synergia. And his little pen pal little entry in in like some wrestling magazine from probably the early 70s. And it said Massapequa, New York. So that is where the mystery arose. So that's all I'm saying. I don't like any of this. I'm not backing <laughs> any of this. I'm not co-signing on any of this. I don't like the use of the word little over and over again. I, don't like I, mean, I mean, he was a little boy at one point, right? And he grew up later into a man. But anyway, so let me just let me just end cap the Taz story because it leads to my hiring. Taz was again gracious enough. He's he's helped me a lot. Um, it is by no means one sided. If anything, it's probably le- the scales lean way in his favor as far as ways he's helped me versus ways I've influenced or helped him much much more in his favor and i'm not kissing ass it's a fact uh he introduced me to um cliff hall who at the time was the sport was was the main designer for sportswear uh at the uh at the corporate headquarters chris was uh cliff was responsible for all of the t-shirts um and merchandise designs uh and basically what it came down to was um i started doing freelance work for the wwe from home via cliff and that was taz's doing taz's introduction um when taz went for his meeting at the wwe i actually made him a binder that i don't know whether he brought it or not i believe he did where i had in adobe illustrator made the titantron i put the taz logo with the 13 on the titantron 
which as you know, that's kind of what they wound up doing was they, they pulsed the logo with the, uh, with the uh, EKG beeping before right. he debuted. Um, and then uh, subsequently I did his t-shirt, which was the first non-black t-shirt for WWE in that time period. Everything in the merch booth was black. Taz's shirt was orange. Yes. And it was a big hit. That was a big seller. I mean, I've made some actually pretty popular selling shirts. Uh, not many, two or three, uh, but that being one of the most popular. I've even seen Vince wear the Taz shirt at one point, uh, the orange shirt. So that led to, to me having a relationship with Cliff, who was an amazing guy. Uh, anybody who's worked with Cliff can tell you he's probably the most laid back, cool, nice guy, super talented, amazing, amazing designer and director. Uh, who, who then, uh, what wound up happening was I was going to Connecticut to visit some family and I knew I was going to be passing the building. And I said, this is my shot. Let me take this guy to lunch. So I felt like this is the great courtesy because the guy hooked me up with some work. Uh, it was great paying work and it was fun to work for a company that I loved since I was a child um, and have some part in the legacy of wrestling, um, which, you know, obviously, you know, became much bigger uh, coming up. And uh, we went to lunch and we had a great lunch and he's an awesome guy. And he said, let me walk you around the building, introduce you to some of the other directors. So he introduced me to Mike Foley, who was the licensing director at the time. And uh, he also introduced me to the senior VP of creative at the time, which was Debbie Bonanzio. Big fan um, of yours. Big, big fan of Keith Caramello. I think you were. And I'm favorite. a big fan of hers. <laughs> Again, another professional who afforded me many, many, many opportunities and, uh, and took my opinions and ideas very uh, respectfully. And, and I didn't have that experience. My corporate experience was very limited. I had worked for another very small local marketing and advertising company. And the rest of my experience was in music and tattooing, not the best people. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and then uh, also uh, let me think if there was anyone else that I was introduced to that day. Those were the prime people because it was all about creative services. Which you know, third floor for 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 uh, for those of you who don't know, and then second floor was where I worked with Brian in publications and new media. Uh, do I have the floors right? You are one floor off, actually. Creative Services was on the second, and when you were with us in publications, we were on the first, right off the elevator. Okay, but then below that, there's a there was a lobby level. Yeah, the lobby was below, right, with the gym. Okay, the gym. that's why I'm that's why I'm screwing it up. Okay. Yeah. So Cliff introduced me to a bunch of uh a handful of the the directors, the people in charge of the creative decisions on that floor. Uh and you know, that was it. About eight months went by and I was back to my own life at home and I was going broke and I was on my knees praying every night for a job. Um, and Mike Foley contacted me literally when I had probably $2 and 75 cents left in my name. Um, and he said, listen, I want you to come in. Uh, we got a couple of days of freelance for you, but that's probably all it's going to be is a couple of days. So fast forward to two and a half years later, <laughs> um, I wound up in the building and, and you know, you know how it is, man. It's all about 
the relationships you develop with people and how they feel about working with you. And I was a luckily, luckily, uh, someone that was well liked there. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then that likability, I guess, led to me working on the belt project while I was homesick. So I was homesick. So do you want to put a chapter mark here? Here comes the belt story. Well, before you say, I just want to uh, preface yeah. this um, in that, because this is also related to phone calls that I would hear through the wall. But for, for people, uh, I think for people that that do know Keith via wrestling, a lot of people know because WWE has even used your name from time to time when they will talk about belt related stuff in the time that Keith was there. He was also working on belts. And so if I remember correctly, and you'll talk about it, I remember you working on one thing, which was, of course, based on a prior design, which was when they took the big gold belt that had been the WCW world title, which mm. was re- it was retired, right? And then they were going to bring it back as the world heavyweight title that they gave to Triple H. They had you do kind of like the revamp of it, like putting the logo on and things, which, you know, like I said, that's a prior design. It's not really your creation, but it was that undisputed title. That is your, as far as I'm concerned, your big claim to fame there, because you designed the undisputed WWE championship when they unified WWE and WCW and you and ECW and he, right ECW. that's right and Chris Jericho right he was the first one to hold it I know Lesnar had it that belt for people that are like the belt fiends they know belts so that belt for people that really know and love belts that undisputed WWE championship of I think it was like late 2001 into 2002 and even beyond that that they were using that was your creation from scratch right your design Correct. And um, the, 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 the little precursor to that was I was homesick um, and I was having really horrible panic attacks, um, which is completely unrelated to the job. But the commute to Stanford from Queens was nearly impossible for me while I was dealing with these anxiety attacks and panic attacks i couldn't be on the road i couldn't be in traffic so for a few months um a month i believe i was pretty much at home uh dealing with some stuff uh and then resulted in a level of stress that just i i was breaking down um luckily for me this belt redesign project popped up and i had started exactly as you said by just i had to tweak the big gold I wouldn't call it a redesign. It was essentially just putting our logo on it. And um, that was pretty much it. And and I think something about, I may have reestablished the nameplate, um, but that was more or less it. There wasn't much to do there. Um, but as I was home, Cliff contacted me and said, hey, Debbie, just let me know. We're redoing all the belts. Would you like to work on this while you're home? And I just was like, holy shit, this <laughs> right. is awesome. You know, and at that point, I'm still a freelancer. So I'm like, fuck yeah, dude, you know, let's do it. And um, the so again, a blessing. I'm homesick. I'm miserable. I'm so unhappy. If anybody's ever suffered from 
anxiety or panic or, or, or anything like it, you know, you don't want to wish it on your worst enemy. And then this, this literal blessing falls in my lap, this dream project. So, um, what I want to say about that belt uh, are a couple of things. And this is one of the only things I really thought about uh, prior to the interview with any like seriousness, because like I said, that I do consider a few things, my legacy on wrestling and, and I'm really happy to have done it. Um, and, you know, people say I would have done it for free and blah, blah, blah. And you know what? That's probably true. I liked getting the money, but <laughs> I, uh, I probably would have done it for free um, just to see it done. Right. Uh, you know, one of the biggest thrills for me was to be at Madison Square Garden when Taz debuted and the logo came on the screen. The place went fucking nuts and he broke Kurt Angle's winning streak. And then I called him on the phone right after and he picked up. Uh, as far as I know, the first two people who spoke to Taz after he debuted and beat Angle were myself and Paul Heyman. Uh, well, like the first two calls. And, um, and meanwhile, I could touch the ceiling of the garden. That's how shitty my seats were. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm talking to the kids next to me. It's like, I'm on the phone with Taz right now. They're like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. But, um, but the, the thing I'd like to say about that belt is it was so well received and to all the fans who have ever complimented that belt. Thank you so much for the compliments. It always ranks number two to the big Eagle. And I don't mind that at all. And I will tell you why I don't mind it. Because in my heart, it ranks two to the Big Eagle. <laughs> and the reason it does is because it, it's not for lack of design strength or any of that. It's that the Big Eagle represents an era. Mm. There's so much emotion and nostalgia and joy, joy attached to the era of the Big Eagle belt. Those were the days that we all, you know, recall as our favorite quote unquote time in wrestling, macho man, Hogan, uh, you know, Rick Rude, the ultimate warrior, what have you, that belt represents so many people's childhood and it represents when wrestling came out of the independent kind of DIY universe into the mainstream rock and wrestling you know catapulted universe yeah made it, it, this, it was it, the explosion of the wwf's popularity it was like when they really took over the world you know that that era 88 to 98 i think was the time frame when they were using that one correct and even even i even liked and and this doesn't get much mentioned in belt talk uh not belt talk TM circle R, but just belt talk in general. <laughs> um, is the the enhanced kind of steroided version of it that came out during the Attitude Era? Yeah, I actually yeah. like that. I liked when they made it a little bigger, a little bolder. It was nice. That's um, the one when homage, when Austin little, won it. That was when Austin won it. They gave yeah, it to yeah. Rock carried it. Austin carried it briefly. Um, so that's what I want to say about that. I love being the number two belt. That's fine with me because of all those reasons. And I rate it number two. So my ego is not wounded at all. When people say it's the second best. Um, the other thing I want to say about it is strangely enough, 
it never looked the way I designed it. And I'm going to tell you what I mean by that. Now, today, if I were there and we were doing it, it would have come out exactly as I had planned. Now, what I had planned is, first of all, my goal was I knew in my mind what the other artists were going to submit because there were a bunch of submissions from artists all over, a lot of freelancers. And they were submitting all of this futuristic fucking horseshit, you know, Z's and lightning bolts and things that look like they should be the graphics on the side of jet skis in Miami. You, you mean like horrifying. the kind of, you mean like the belts they have now? <laughs> like, is that kind of what you mean? Uh, the only belts they have now are home plates with the logo on them. But right. the, uh, but, but, you know, almost, almost like, uh, they were very graphic, like, you know, it, it, like the equivalent of the Nike swoosh, but as a wrestling belt. It's like they were trying to be like, zing, 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 this is a wrestling belt or, right. you know, whatever. Like I said, they looked like they should have been on the side of some Miami speedboat, not a belt. So my thing was, I know everybody's going to submit something that's supposed to look like the next generation. My idea was I'm going to make it look like my belt came before all the belts. My belt came out of a pirate ship. (laughs) They dug it from the bottom of the sea and pulled it out of a treasure chest. And this was my belt. Now, the look of the belt was never done properly. No offense to Jamar or any of the people involved in the actual physical making of the belt. Um, what that belt was supposed to look like was a combination of the big Eagle belt uh, and the, and the, the big gold. So all of those designs that are drawn out on that belt and they're very linear, mm-hmm. there's like linear uh, ornamental designs in it. Those were supposed to be three dimensional ornaments, right? Like the gold like belt when you would run your, Right. If you ran your hand across the big gold, that was done in wax. A real jeweler had to have done that first belt. That was not an acid engraved belt like most of the WWE belts were. Right. So we would get a very two-dimensional product. We would get something that was basically acid etched. So whatever was black on the plate would, would etch in and whatever was negative would stay gold. And then you would, they would put a stain in it or a paint in it to make those areas, whatever colors, black, blue, what have you. So they were not capable, or Jamar was not capable of making the belt I had in my mind. In my mind, you would run your hand across this belt and feel the ornamentation of the big gold in those areas. But then the center globe and the top eagle, <clears throat> pardon me, would be the things that represented the winged eagle belt. And then I put some tattoo in it. Yeah. The eagle was a very tattoo designed eagle. And the the four nautical stars were very much a tattoo influence. Again, to give it that almost colonial, almost like historical feel. Uh, So that was it. It was never realized to my full concept. But nonetheless, still number two, I'll take it. Uh, and I gotta say, I got chills when Ric Flair had it on his knee and he was in a suit and he introduced it on television. That's right. Uh, I really yeah. felt like something, you know, w- I, I was like, holy shit, 
here I go from a kid who probably has seen every pay-per-view, watched this stuff with rabbit ears on in the Bronx when it was the Grand Wizard and, uh, you know, it, it, you know, on one channel um, on Saturday mornings. And, and, and this guy, fucking Ric Flair's got my belt on his knee. And it's the culmination of the three biggest promotions coming together. I mean, it was, you know, I know ultimately it doesn't mean anything to anybody. It doesn't mean anything to but it fucking meant a lot to me, man. And, um, and I I liked it too. I remember really, really being happy about it. I mean, and and it was I I was so and I think I even thanked you at the time because like there were a lot of crappy looking belts coming out, and I I have to say, and like disappointing. I have really not enjoyed the direction they've gone with a lot of the newer belts in WWE since they, you know, with the big giant logo, it just looks like a it looks like a gigantic, almost like a high school ring that they en- enlarge to the size of a belt. I- I'm not a big fan of a lot of these very modern designs. And you really brought that like old school, like gravitas, but feel like this is something important. Like this thing is important, has to have a lot of details on it. I don't like belts that are too minimalistic where it's very flat and there's not a lot of detail. You had a lot of ornamentation. I do remember, and maybe, I don't know if you remember this, but this is another phone call memory. For whatever reason, because this would have been like 01, I guess, that you were designing this thing, or maybe early 02. Well, before before you continue, let me thank you for all of those compliments, because, you know, I know, you know, all kidding aside and our friendship aside, you're a wrestling historian. This stuff means a lot to you. You're You're a fan first. Uh, a, a historian, uh, an author on the topic. So, for you to say so many complimentary things, thank you. That means a lot to me. Well, and that's I mean, exactly what I was going for. And I, I think I almost heard you half say the word heritage. Um, that I think internally, at some point, they were calling it the heritage belt. Uh, everybody in the audio format can see my air quotes. The heritage <laughs> belt. Well, um, because, but it, yeah, yeah. No, I was going to say it looked it. It's like you, you like you were saying. It had this balance to it. It looked old school and classic and vintage. But here's the here's the truth, though. There were a lot of genuinely old school belts, like in the old old days of wrestling, that didn't look that impressive at all. Like a, a lot of you know, I don't want to <laughs> knock anybody and designers, but like a lot of belts in the seventies were just. They, they, there was a chintziness to him. I was even talking to, uh, I had a recent guest on, um, uh, Scott Teal, that we were talking about that where, you know, back then the fans didn't really care as much or they weren't really designed for TV. You know, you were going to be like mm-hmm. a, a thousand yards away. You wouldn't be able to see it. So, I mean, you struck that balance where it suggested old school and vintage and classic, but it didn't actually look like the old school belts from the past. Mm-hmm. Like it looked better than them. But what I but I wanted to say is, uh, for whatever reason, at this time, and I don't even think they were married yet, uh, Stephanie and and Triple H, but they mm. maybe they were, I don't know. But he was getting a lot of power and control behind the scenes, and we didn't even fully understand at the time. And for whatever reason, I remember he had some kind of input in this process because I remember a phone call, and I didn't know who it was. And then you got off the phone and you told me where it was Triple H, and he called you up because he was, like, making some kind of critique on the belt. And I remember you 
talking him out of it like and succeeding because his problem was this if i remember right so he was thinking of course like everyone else of the classic like the golden eagle all the belts of the 80s that would have the big globe with the blue water on it and looking like a real globe uh, and your belt now i remember this story well your idea was well, well whether it was planned that way or not was you didn't really want a lot of color. You wanted really like black and gold, like a real, just very, very, uh, you know, not, you, you specifically didn't want the blue water. And so you got into this whole thing about, you were like, no, 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 man, you got to listen to me. No, it's going to look so much more just classic and with, you know, with the black instead of the blue, you don't want the blue because that's like what we used to do. And now we're doing, you know, and you went into this whole thing and you actually convinced them, like, because it wound up being done your way. Well. I, it's so funny, man. You remember more about this shit than I do, which is awesome. <laughs> the, um, you know, I, I, you know, I cannot confirm or deny that the conversation was with Triple H. I do remember meeting with him about a couple of things. I'm not sure if that was one of them, but I do remember the conversation. I just don't remember who was on the other end of the phone. But what it was, and and the way I did convince the person in the end was with a, with a term that graffiti artists use and i'm not a graffiti artist but I, I you know i became very a very good salesperson with tattooing believe it or not i started to learn how to speak to someone to appeal to their ego and get them to want what you ultimately would like them to have um and you know i had this this mentor in art his name was james uh, and I remember James was like teaching me about graphic design when I first started picking up a computer. And he said, listen, I want to teach you something about designing for people. I said, great, please. He said, listen, a guy comes in and he says, hey, my name is Bill. I have a plumbing company. I want you to do a jacket for me that says Bill's Plumbing. He goes, that's not what the guy wants. I said, excuse me? He said, no. He said, the guy does not want a jacket that says Bill's Plumbing. That's not what he wants. He wants a jacket that says Bill has a giant. And I said, what? He said, that guy wants to wear that jacket and feel like a million bucks. It's not even about his plumbing business. It's about his ego. And if you make something that inflates the guy's ego, he's going to buy it. He's going to pay whatever price you put on. Okay. So the ways there are ways to do that. One is to make is to use certain language, language that convinces the person that their idea is immature or their idea is foolish or their idea is not professional. But you can't say those things because now you're, in, you're insulting the person and they're not going to want to do business with you. So one of the terms I like to use is toy. So what I had said to that That's person right. on the phone was, listen, if you put this blue water in there, it just looks like a toy. And we don't want our belt to look like a toy. The black makes it, you know, like you said, the black gives it a classic look, a heritage look. As soon as you put sky blue in there for water, now we made a toy. Do you want the guys wearing a toy? And that was it. That language sold the black that's right and now that you bring that up 
I remember that. I remember the toy rationale that you I, I totally remember that now that you you that you were kind of saying, look, it's gonna look like a toy, right? Or or you know, like one of the toy belts or something like that. Like instead of like right. a real, like this is the real belt. Uh, I'm glad whoever it was, I'm glad that you convinced them of that. Um it may you know who it may have been, to be honest with you? It might have been Shane. Well, I mean, Shane, Shane would have been right there. And, he, you know, he would have been like ten feet away, right? I mean, we were on the same floor. But it's not like he didn't call. It's not like he didn't call me on the phone. Um, but Shane, Debbie Bonanzio, and myself worked very closely on the and and believe it or not, it wasn't just that belt. That belt is the cream of the crop. It's uh, achievement for me at that company, I believe. Um, and the. Other belts, some were just tweaked, some were redesigned, some were designed from scratch, like the Raw Tag Team titles. I'm actually very proud of those as well. Um, right. I like the way those came out. The SmackDown Tag Team titles, I like the way those came out. Uh, those were more co-contributed, um, you know, some 50-50, some 70-30, by the late uh, Pat McDarby, who was an excellent graphic artist who worked uh, freelance for WWF. He taught me quite a bit. Uh, mentored me a little in my early tenure there took me out to lunch when i first got hired there uh so got, rest in peace pat mcdarby responsible for a lot of beautiful design work uh that was done in that era and way prior to me being there um and then the u.s title was essentially shane and i that title was shane and i oh that's uh, right a lot of it is a, a lot of it is shane shane came up with a lot of the stuff on that design uh, and, uh, I was very proud of the cruiserweight belt, which didn't get a lot of play, but I thought it was a really classic looking cruiserweight belt. Um, Mysterio wore it for quite a bit. Um, women's title. I didn't do much on intercontinental was a logo replacement. And then eventually they dropped intercontinental, um, which I tried to fight in a meeting was one of my first, uh, one of my only official quote unquote interactions with Vince. Uh, also here's my Vince story. I'm sitting in a meeting. I was called to a meeting, uh, to represent the belt project. Um, I had such a bad panic attack <laughs> that I left the meeting briefly to go to the restroom and I was dousing myself with water. Uh, now for me, this is literally like meeting the president of the United States because and I, I had some interaction with Vince on the elevator in the hallways. Fucking, he's a ball breaker, great guy, funny as hell. I remember just me and him in the elevator. And I don't know if you remember, I used to wear kind of vintage clothes, yes, uh, button-down shirts, and and you know, uh, and and I had like black and white wingtip Doc Martin shoes. Like I was really into dressing up back then. And I remember it was just me and Vince in the elevator, and he gave me the fucking up down man. He went right from the top of my head. He went right down to the shoes, right back up to eye to eye. He goes, uh, those are some shoes, pal. And the, thank God the door opened. I went, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Have a nice day, sir. And I walked out <laughs> the elevator. But, but I basically uh, was in the bathroom, doused to myself with water. I'm like, and I basically said, you have two choices. Get back in there. Or go home and never come back. Mm -hmm. That's it. I went back in. And of course, because God has a sense of humor, I was the last thing on the agenda. 
So I had to sweat through everybody else's bullshit. Of course. And um, they looked at the things and, and some woman brought up the blue in the belt and I made the same argument and that all got squashed. Uh, and then it came up to, uh, and he goes, okay, and we're going to eliminate these. And I think it was like the hardcore title and something else and something. And then he said, uh, and the, uh, the intercontinental title. And I was like, uh, uh, you know, can I just, uh, can I just make a point? And everybody put their head down like, oh, this fucking guy, what's he going <laughs> to say? Cause everybody, everybody at that company was such a fucking yes yes man and woman sycophant and um i said you know i I gotta be honest the the intercontinental title it's got so much history uh and it was always such a great storytelling tool to catapult somebody then into heavyweight title status uh i I'd hate to see it go. I just want to. I just want to put that on the record. He goes, "I understand, pal. It's gone." <laughs> and I said, "Okay. I just, I just, I just wanted to be heard." He said, that's, "That's fine." And uh, of course, they brought it back not long after. But they did. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I felt like, and and you know what, Shane really encouraged me in this area, uh, especially when I started working down in publications. Because I had befriended Shane, it was the whole reason I got a full time job there was Shane. Wink, wink. That's supposed to be a secret, I guess. And um, Shane respected me because I didn't say yes to everything. Um, I would say no, and I would disagree, and I would, you know, and sometimes I take my lumps for it. But that's what you're there for, man. I mean, if you're there just to go through uh, a creative experience with the least amount of friction and resistance, what the hell are you going to contribute? You got to throw some spaghetti to the wall. Some's going to stick and some's going to fall. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Or, or lobster sauce or banana juice, whatever you want to throw. Correct. Any Uh, sticky substance. As we, as we bring it full circle, because, uh, I can't yeah, believe yeah. it, but but our our time has flown by, and we could easily do about two or three more hours. But um, uh, I'm have to hold it there. Yeah, no, well, you are. I know you're saying it facetiously. <laughs> you're saying it facetiously, but you are. And I wouldn't have had you on if you weren't, because I will pat myself on the back now and say that when I plan guests, I only yes, invite people booking. that right. My, my booking, I have the pencil. I when I plan guests, it's people that I know are going to be interesting. So you know, it's all part of the plan. But amazing, amazing talent for booking. (laughs) Well, I got to have a talent for something, right? It's not you know, it's not any kind of like actual honest work. So at least it's for something. At any point that we mention the fact that we, we, you and I, really bonded over the fact that one of our coworkers spoke so fucking loud that we would. Are we going to get in trouble? No, please. We, we, so just, just, just one of the things that we would share shits and giggles over on a regular basis was she was a lovely person. I'm not going to name any names because I don't want to completely fucking bury her. Thank you. Uh, Sweetheart. But uh, such a loud, loud speaking voice on the telephone. And we got into the habit of, we would quote the old droopy dog cartoon where the bear was trying to sleep in the uh, in the cave, and every time he heard a noise, he'd come out. He'd go, "Shut up!" 
<laughs> and uh we'd send each we'd send each other little video clips of it oh god it was so funny but uh anyway i just i had to throw that in because that's one of my fondest memories of working in publications next to you was how we used to laugh about that fucking voice just echoing through the entire bullpen but uh all right do your wrap up i had to get that I had no to get that. please i'm glad you up. did because i that brought back such a vivid memory for me i I remember it now. I, I don't. <laughs> it's all coming back without even getting into too much detail, right? Wasn't it like there was like it, it, in the cartoon? Wasn't it like this old man and he needed? He was like the colonel or something, right? <laughs> and he needed quiet to sleep. That was the cartoon. Yes. He, and and quiet, so like, quiet, quiet. I need quiet. Right. That. Right. Great classic <laughs> cartoon. Wow. That just. I'm going to be thinking about that all day now. But no. But yeah, but. I think it was the bear, the bear guy was guarding his quietness and Droopy would come in and like pop a balloon or light a firecracker. Right. And it like it, it's so, so classic, like Tex Avery style. Like he'd like the fucking, the stick of dynamite and the, Oh, it was maybe that bulldog character, the big bulldog. And he'd shift back and forth and he'd grab the dynamite, put it in his mouth and then run up a hill. Yes. Like the hill would be like a hundred yards away and then the dynamite would go off in his mouth and he'd have the black face. Anyway, sorry, no one gets this. No, I, I don't care if anyone gets it. We get it. And in fact, I, I actually have a Facebook group for this show. So what I'm going to wind up doing is once this episode is aired, I am going to probably post uh, the I'll post the whole damn cartoon on there so people get the joke. But before I, awesome. I end, though, the, how I do want to wrap up, though, is uh, I want to give you a chance to just let people know how they can find you and, and things that you'd like to mention about what you're doing these days. Oh, thanks very much. So. um best way to follow me is Instagram and it's tattoos by Keith T-A-T-T-O-O-S-B-Y-K-E-I-T-H and if there isn't a link tree there now uh, I'll make sure I get one up soon and you can just find everything through there it's really the best way to follow me because most of what I do is visual uh, I did have a very um, uh well-frequented podcast myself in the art and tattoo world called the tattoo mint and i'll be relaunching that again soon so stay tuned if you like this kind of conversation uh i do talk to everybody about everything it's not tattoo centric uh as much as it used to be and that's about it man i love you i'm so happy to do this and i'm so uh, glad to see you flourishing and writing and and just you know, sharing all your gifts and talents with everybody. I think it's just amazing. And as a friend, just seeing your family and seeing your kid go off to school. I mean, yeah. like I said, man, is the, there's the sad parts of, of getting old. And then there's the parts where you're just like, damn, pretty great. It's very you true. Know? Very true. And, and I want to reiterate because, you know, it's less editing for me to do, but because you did briefly cut out again, you, the name of your podcast was oh you son of a bitch <laughs> tattoo mentor right that's the one tattoo mentor tattoo tattoo mentor podcast yeah, yeah you, get, you can find it through apple Podcasts or any of the other venues all right well from one podcaster to another thank you keith so much for making the time for this it's much appreciated no my honor man thank you and uh just honored to be asked and i hope i gave you something fun There you have it, folks, my conversation with Keith Caramello. And boy, was it fun. 
to kind of go back to those early 2000s days. And as you can hear when you listen, the memories just come flooding back and it's like no time has passed at all. For those of us who went through that whole period and that experience, it's a badge of honor that I think we'll never forget. We're sort of like uh, veterans of a foreign war or something. Uh, But I'll be doing more of those conversations in the weeks to come and in the months to come. It's something I always love to do. Uh, Next week, however, is going to be a little different. Next week, we're going to have a member of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast family on Shut Up and Wrestle because we are going to be sticking to wrestling next week when my guest is none other than the host of Stick to Wrestling and the tape trading legend himself, Mr. John McAdam. That was a lot of fun. I can't wait to share it with you. John's great. I love his podcast. I got to be on his podcast. And now I finally got to return the favor. Um, Also, in the coming weeks, I have more people... Coming up for Shut Up and Wrestle, I've got the longtime uh, St. Louis, uh, Illinois area, uh, uh, Missouri area promoter, Herb Simmons, beloved promoter. He is going to be on the show. Also, another classic 605er and member of Arcadian Vanguard royalty, Mr. Kurt Brown, a.k.a. Vandal Drummond, who I finally got to meet at the Cauliflower Alley Club uh, reunion. He's going to be coming on soon. Uh, Another member, uh, another one of my PWI Pro Wrestling Illustrated colleagues, Al Castle, senior writer of PWI and my co-host on my other podcast, the PWI podcast. So if you listen to that, you've heard us talk a lot and we're going to talk more when I have Al on as a guest. I've got some other people that I haven't actually recorded yet. I want to kind of keep mum about those until I until I have them in the bank and then I can brag to you all about them. But more great ones coming up. In the weeks to come, keep following Shut Up and Wrestle. You can find us at suawpod.com. In addition to wherever you find your favorite podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Podcast Addict, Google Podcasts, of course, Apple Podcasts. I think that's where most people find it. You will find Shut Up and Wrestle there. So don't be shy. And don't be shy about joining the Facebook group. Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. If you go to that page on Facebook, you can join the conversation all about this show. We love to have you. There's hundreds of us over there. Let's keep the party going. That's what I say. Um, All the wonderful projects that I'm working on, I hope you guys have been listening to and enjoying the wrestling news from Arcadian Vanguard. Every morning, we are very proud. The team at, at AV... Uh, Brian Last, Mike Sebervivi, Jace Nacarado, the great Lou Kibbelman, all of us are proud to put this together for you um, every morning. Hope you're enjoying it. TheWrestlingNews.com. There's also my book that I mentioned at the top of the show, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, available in print, digital, and audio form on Amazon.com and audio form through Audible as well. Uh, There is Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the magazine I write for, pwi-online.com, and also um, Inside the Ropes magazine at insidetheropesmagazine.com. I just submitted an article to them all about the Samoan dynasty in professional wrestling, this multi-generational dynasty. I'll tell you more about that as we get closer. That's going to be an issue 26 coming out uh, very soon. And if you happen to be looking for me on social media, I mentioned it before, I'm on Twitter at Brian R. Solomon. I am also on Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. If you want to see some wonderful pictures uh, illustrating my life, go there. Uh, On Facebook, you can find my author Facebook page, Brian Solomon Writer. 
And if you go to any one of those uh, social media platforms, you will find the link to my author website on the World Wide Web. So check that out if you have an inclination. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that when you come to a fork in the road, pick it up. So long, wrestling fans. <laughs>